I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan. Coming to you during whiplash hot and cold spells in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is novelist Fonda Lee. Fonda is the author of the Young Adult Exo series, as well as the epic fantasy Green Bone Saga. The first book in that series, Jade City, was a finalist for the Nebula Award and won the World Fantasy Award in 2018. Fonda and I discuss her transition from the world of business to being a creative, how outside influences can affect an author's career, and the debut energy that surrounds a new author. Enjoy my conversation with Fonda Lee. Actually, supply chain issues was one of the things I had written down because I know you've tweeted it about it a bunch. And I imagine that a bunch of authors are just a bit nervous about it. Uh, and I was curious kind of leading into that, what is, if you don't mind talking about it, what's your major seller? Is it ebook, audiobook, or physical? So it is a pretty even mix of the three. I'd say it's, it is almost a third, a third, a third wow. um, between e, print, and audio, which is like astonishing because yeah. it means that actually print is a minority of my sales. Um, I think uh, and it varies a little bit across the titles. Um, and we're just talking Greenbone Saga because um, print is a is the vast majority of my uh, young adult titles, the older titles. But with my current Greenbone Saga, there's a higher proportion of ebook sales for the first in the series because um, my publisher tends to put it on periodic specials. So they'll do the Kindle daily deal where like it goes down to $2.99 and then I get a spike of ebook sales. So on the whole, the first book has a higher percentage of ebooks than the second. And audio is a pretty surprisingly strong portion of the pie uh, for a couple of reasons. I have a great narrator and the first book was nominated for an Audi award. So I think that helped as well. So it's about like 25 to 30%. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a surprisingly even mix. That's interesting. Cause my, so powder mage, like I didn't have any, cause you started with young adult, correct? Yes. Um, so, so I didn't have anything other than just going into epic fantasy for my sales and mine have pretty consistently been around 60% ebook and then maybe 20 to 25% audio. And then the rest are print. So kind of a low print percentage for me. So I guess I guess like seeing everything about uh, print being, you know, supply chain issues coming up uh, has made me a little less nervous than normal because I, I still have like nine months to my next book and all that stuff. But but it's still one of those little itches that it kind of freaks me out a tiny bit. Like, OK, how long is this going to last? Uh, what are the consequences going to be? Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. I, I it, it's. It's weird when you are in a creative field where you generally have quite a lot of control over what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. You know, you're in charge of your schedule and everything, but then there's so many things outside of your control. You know, these supply chain issues, you know, if our companies are fighting with Amazon, uh, all that stuff. Oh, so many. And, you know, for a publisher, they have a portfolio of authors, right? Like they're not dependent on any single one of us, you know, unless you are, you know, maybe like Stephen King or George Martin, but like, (laughs) you know, for the most part, they have a stable of authors. Right. And um, so they're, they're kind of at least like diversified across us, but like, this is our only career. Right. So like, if you have a book, we write these chonky books and um, they come out once every, you know, one and a half to two years or more, 
that it can feel incredibly um, anxiety inducing when you know that come launch time, so much of it really is out of your control, whether there's, you know, supply chain issues, paper shortage, pandemic, uh, maybe something terrible happens on your on your launch day. It's, you know, an election or an insurrection or whatever is going on. Um, you know, all of that is out of your control. I mean, the one thing that I am really grateful for that I think mitigates that anxiety somewhat is the reality that like, there is no expiration date on the books. And even though, and I've definitely noticed, you mentioned the majority of your books are E, um, I've noticed that number, like that has gone up and up for me, like over even the last few years. And like people are finding books after there, it's not like your book is now off the shelf after two months and people can't find it anymore. I think, especially in our genre, there's more of a long tail that people are able to find it um, after the fact. Like I certainly noticed um, that uh, the Greenbone Saga has been a slow build. It definitely wasn't like a, this big hit out of the gate. It was one of those books that just kind of gradually built an audience and really, like, I think it was, honestly, it was after the second book came out that uh, I felt like, oh, yeah, this actually has some traction. Up until then, I was like, oh, no, like, <laughs> how am I doing with the publisher? <laughs> like, you, there's, and plus, we don't even see numbers, you know, until like months after a financial <laughs> period closes. So there's also the, like, you're, you're uh, constantly feeling like things are happening, like, good, you may be getting good news, but you're also... Um, there's also like mitigating factors going on. And so you're constantly in this weird state of like, I don't know how I'm doing. Like all I know, all I can really judge is like how fast I'm running compared to the horse next to me. And everyone's running pretty darn fast. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to really kind of conceptualize your career because when you're, when you're an author, you, you have to, you have to plan not just your career, but your personal finances out by a couple of years and you need to know what's going to be coming in, what's going to be going out. And you never really know. You can only estimate. Um, you know, I, I, I keep very kind of strict uh, uh, spreadsheets based with all of my sales. And I ask for sales continuously. And I'm probably one of the pain in the asses that gets them to actually get up a, you know, an author portal. It, but it blows my mind how like, I'm supposed to do this for the next you know, 30, 40 years of my career and like trying to keep all of that information straight and plan both my professional and personal life around it. It's very strange. It really is. And, you know, you never know what you, you have to plan with enough of a uh, tolerance for uncertainty, right? Because you kind of have to figure that, okay, I'm working on uh, two or three different projects one of these could go south at any time. One of these could take off at any time. Um, I think I tweeted a, a little while ago where I was like, oh, the life of a creative professional is like, at any given time, you've got like a bunch of things, but you can't talk about them because you're waiting for something to see whether this thing is going to be a thing or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird because I, I talked to my my old high school friends who are, you know, all kind of have real jobs. And they, you know, we're of the age, you know, we're all in our mid thirties. And so we're all of the age of, you know, we're starting to talk about investing and what we want to do to plan for our retirements and all that stuff. And that's a very weird space to be in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Not, in, not investing in Bitcoin. You know, right. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I think it's especially pronounced for me because I came from a corporate background. So I have like an MBA, I worked in like finance and I, I have all these, I, I have all these like college friends who are venture capitalists and investment bankers and consultants who have like financially normal, like stable, normal jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and so the juxtaposition for me is, is pretty stark sometimes. I'm like, Oh yeah, you have 401k. That's, that's good for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, maybe I'll get one of those someday. That'd be nice. I, actually, I was very curious about that because you came uh, from, you know, so you're a corporate strategist, right? And and you came from what I would consider kind of the businessiest of of like real jobs, and then you come over to publishing, which is writing fantasy novels, <laughs> right? So, but publishing as a business, and I I hope this doesn't come off as too unkind, uh, is a total dumpster fire. 
you know, everybody's on vacation half the time. Everybody's got a little weird quirk. We all have our total artist schedules of I'll answer an email in a couple of weeks. You know, does so coming over to publishing from kind of a real field where things kind of move very quickly. How does that feel? It's definitely an adjustment, a pretty major transition. Um, And I think it has helped me, honestly, in a few ways. The first being that I can understand when business decisions are being made and see how publishers to treat this like a business and and that at the end of the day, my work is a product, right? Like it's really important to me. I'm pouring my heart yeah. and soul out on the page, but I can, uh, I understand the, like ju- the reasons for deciding whether to spend money on sending someone on tour or how many arcs to print or uh, whether, you know, someone gets more support in front list versus mid list. And so I can, disassociate myself a little bit from myself, like the worth of my words versus like the cold, hard business decisions that I know are being made in a conference room somewhere. Right. Um, because I, I can, I can sort of see the profit loss justifications, um, for things. Uh, but, um, it has also been challenging personally because I came from, a field where there was a clear career path. And, you know, I would hesitate to say that anything is a meritocracy, but at least in the corporate world, there were clear guideposts, right? They were like, hit these targets and, you know, do this job and get a certain amount of, um, you know, high evaluations and you'll be up for promotion in like two to three years. Or, you know, this is sort of the career path if you want to go from an associate to like a partner. While as the creative field has none of that, it is everyone choose your own adventure. And here you can have, you can start out at the top debut of the and uh, bestseller list and uh, not sell your next series. You could switch into three genres before you find one where you have uh, success. You can um, start off in one medium and go to another medium and then another medium. And so every there's there's much more freedom and uh, fear in in this field. Do you so coming over from business? Do you feel like do you feel like the slower pace of publishing is uh, is that annoying to you or is it more relaxing and does it feel nice? I think it's see it's even though it's slower it doesn't feel slower for me on like a day-to-day basis because at any given time on, on deadline or you know have like something to promote or something to launch or um you know some event to do so my day-to-day life doesn't feel like I'm waiting necessarily for anyone like I think um you know the advice given to a lot of uh, entry-level writers is you know don't send off your manuscript and then sit there waiting for the answer to your query or waiting for your editor to get you notes back. Like just go on, like do something else because you know, you, you, you're a creator. So it's a, it's like um, that rule from Glengarry Glenn Ross, ABC, always be closing. I always think of it as like always be creating. So like if I shoot something over to my editor or my agent, I'm like, okay, I've thrown it over the fence and like, I, that's all I can do. And I'll, I'll go do my own thing. I've got other projects that I need to work on other you know, even if it's like, okay, I'm finally going to get my car serviced or, <laughs> you know, clean my, clear up my inbox or, you know, update my website. There, it always feels like day to day. There's a lot when you do. I'm not waiting on people, but at the same time, there is so much of these like long periods in publishing that, you know, are either editorial or publication production related where you're just kind of waiting for something to happen. And it feels glacial but then um i've been dealing with hollywood and that is even more glacial so <laughs> it's all relative <laughs> yeah it, it's it's weird how every kind of every creative medium is a little bit different you know like like uh, talking to delilah dawson on this podcast uh we talked about her her writing comic experience oh yeah and so- and she talked about like just crazy number of emails every yes. day boom 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 everything yeah, yeah. back and forth really quick 
And then I'm over here like I write Epic Fantasy and I talk to my editor like two or three times a year. <laughs> like it's such a different experience, even though they're kind of uh, adjacent fields almost, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. It, so when you were, so when did you kind of f- make the transition from working, you know, full-time job over to uh, working as creative? See, about, um, it was, it was not an overnight transition. It took a few years to do. So I was uh, working a normal day job and hit this point in my career where I was like, oh, I really want to get back to writing. Like, I don't write anymore. I used to write all the time. I don't have time to write and I need to make some changes in my life. So I finally decided to take writing seriously and um, had to make room in my life to do that, which meant cutting back on my day job responsibilities and starting to like take writing classes and to set myself goals um, as to getting stuff done, sending it out, uh, trying to get an agent, all that. So I, I really started doing that about 10 years ago. And over the course of a couple of years, I um, got a, uh, a couple of manuscripts out there, got an agent. And then when I got my first book deal, I went part-time at my job. Um, because if anyone is going through this, is listening and is going through a career transition where you are hoping to become a full-time writer, once you get to a point where you are publishing and your book's coming out, uh, writing is a full-time job that hasn't paid you anything yet, really. And so <laughs> you end up kind of doing two full-time jobs, uh, which is not sustainable. So, um, you know, fortunately, I was in a position with my family where I could cut back on the day job. And then what I did was I quit and um, went freelance. So I was still doing um, consulting projects where yeah. I would take on a job for like three months and I would work on that. And then I would just not take another job so I could focus on the writing and I would kind of stagger that. So I was doing that until um, I got to a place where I just sort of stopped taking those jobs and transitioned into to writing full time. Oh, that, that's kind of nice that you were kind of in a field that you were able to do sl- a slow transition rather than a, well, I have to quit now completely. Right. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad I was able to do that. Even still, it felt very much like jumping out of an airplane with no parachute. <laughs> it very much was like, but I am, I am a very all or nothing person. And when I got to the point where I was like, no, I like, I, this is what I really want to do. I want to be a full-time writer. Then I, I just had to get out of, of other work. You know, like my heart was not in it anymore. I know, I know writers, um, I'm sure you do too, who are able to maintain both. Like they still have their day job and they enjoy it and it brings them fulfillment and they're still like writing novels in the evenings and weekends. And that, I, that I have a hard, I would have a hard time with that. <laughs> it would be a difficult balance for me. Honestly, I, and I never did it. I, I, I I'm fortunate that I'd ever had to, but man, I, people that are able to juggle both, they just blow my mind. So my sister actually writes for genealogy. Um, she, uh, and so in her kind of small field, she's kind of got a big name. She writes lots of articles. She does conventions a bunch of times a year. Uh, but she also is a mom and she kind of takes care of everything at home. And it's like, I, I don't, as somebody who's like barely able to keep his writing career, like straight without kids, uh, it's man, just anything, anything being able to juggle major life things like that. I'm uh, hats off every time for me. Yeah. Well, my kids were little when I started writing and I remember writing in the car while they were at, you know, swim practice and I'd get like, okay, I have 35 minutes, you know, and I would, I would pound out some words. I'd um, have my like son was in preschool at the time. And um, as soon as I dropped him off, I was like to the coffee shop and like, efficiently try and get in some words. And I actually think I was more efficient then Mm -hmm. than I am now as a writer, because I had all these constraints on my time and I did not have any external um, publishing obligations, right? Like no one was asking for my next book. Like I was just trying to get in um, and hope my project sold. So it wasn't like I was distracted by email or Twitter or anything like that. I could just sit down and, and get the words in. I had this goal. And now like there's a combination of things, right? First of all, I mean, my 
I have a more flexible schedule, but I also have more author responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And I find, I don't know about you, but I have found that as I've become more established and written more books, you, you do not despairingly speed up. You, in fact, if anything, slow down because your standards are higher. Like I used to be able to do a first draft and be like happily writing garbage because I didn't know that it was garbage. But now I can see it like I can see every seam and rivet in my first draft that I know I have to fix. And it's so glaringly obvious because my my standards are much higher. And so it makes it harder to actually write quickly. Yeah, it's funny because you... I think that the the hallmark of being an experienced author is is being able to look at something and say, yeah, that's garbage. I'm tossing it. I know it was a week's worth of work, but it's fine to get rid of it and do better. Uh, but also it slows you down like crazy. Like I think the first draft of Promise of Blood I wrote in like six months. Uh, it just, you know, I just, I don't know how I did that before. <laughs> and it's it's kind of crazy how you you develop yourself as um, you know, kind of a professional author and uh, as, as a creative. And it almost, yeah, like you were saying, it just, it almost adds to your workload. It's like, oh, I wish I was kind of young, dumb and throwing shit at the wall still <laughs> rather than planning ahead and carefully doing things. Yeah. And I am, a, I am a very um, meticulous writer uh, in that I need to know where the story is. I don't need a massively detailed outline. Um, I'm not, you know, quite, quite that much of a plotter, Um, but I do need to know where the story is going. And I am very like detail oriented with my work. Like I want everything to fit. I want all the pieces to work. I want to like make everything really tight and efficient. And so I feel like I'm almost uh, right. I almost write books the way like a watchmaker makes watches. Like I, I like to see the mechanism of it and I want everything to run some, like to work together. Um, and, and that can sometimes uh, when you're trying to just get the words out, right. You have to kind of push past that instinct. Yeah. And I, you know, do all sorts of tricks uh, to, to try and do that. And I, maybe I should, and I, and I keep trying to find ways um, to be more productive. It's like the Holy grail right? Of a writer. We were like, maybe if I try write or die, maybe if I get freedom, maybe if I buy an alpha smart Neo, maybe if I like get a tread desk, maybe if I work outside in the <laughs> patio, maybe if I like keep doing all these different trial and errors just to get yourself to, uh, to, to keep going and, and yeah. get eke out that like extra little bit of productivity. Yeah, definitely. 
But like, this is why you need to get straight A's and go to college and get like a real job and be financially stable and all this stuff. <laughs> and, um, and so I think that um, by the time I actually started taking writing seriously, I sort of checked enough of the boxes for them to yeah. consider me to have, you know, not been a failure that they were like, okay, all right, go, go play with your hobby. See how it goes. <laughs> you earned it. Take some time. Yeah. Uh, that's funny. Um, so then writing for you was a childhood thing, uh, going all the way back, right? Yeah. Yeah. Always wrote, um, even when I was a kid and I'd write on the bus, um, you know, fantasy from the beginning, I was writing a story about dragons and, and assorted magical forest folk when I was like in fifth grade and I just wrote it on the bus. Um, longhand uh, yeah so uh, one of those things where it's like I'm I feel like I'm late to writing and also early and it, when when the people ask oh, how long have you been writing you know that's kind of one of those questions where like hmm, at what point do you count yourself as having started being a writer right so where was the big gap then when did you kind of stop writing and transition over to you know family and business and you know college all that stuff yeah, I think it was after college. Like even in college, I was writing um, quite a bit, like just for myself, fan fiction, whatever, um, took my fancy, but not taking it seriously from a publication standpoint. And then when I graduated college and hadn't got my first real job and, you know, I was an adult, then there was about a, uh, really like about like an eight year fallow period that was like just work and you know then family and moving and career you know all that other stuff before i came back to it do, do you think there was an aspect of kind of burnout in your day job uh, that kind of kind of got you back going to writing or was it very simply kind of wishing for more of the pleasure of it because i i talked to a lot of people and you people that had kind of high power careers i guess you'd say uh, before they became authors, they all seem to have just kind of been like, oh, screw this. I'm going to I'm gonna see what I could do with my creative self and try to be happy again. Uh, and I was curious if that was your... I, I, I can relate to that. I can, yeah. yes, definitely the, the screw this element was strong. Um, for me, honestly, I was at this point in my career where I had been in a role for a few years. And so all the like, conversation of having with like my boss and so on was like, okay, what's like the next role for you? Like you're at this role and do you want to like, you know, do you want to move into this? Like, what do you, where do you see yourself in the company in five years? Like, are you aiming to be like VP of this division or VP of this division? Like, what do you want to do? And um, so I was doing all this sort of soul searching and really the answer is like, I don't want to do any of this. Like, I don't want my boss's job. I don't want my boss's boss's job. I don't want this job either. Like I, there's just, I don't, what do I really, so then I did the whole, this whole like, um, uh, career visioning exercise that was really kind of meant to be like, Oh, well, where, where do you want to go in your career? And I was, and my answer was one of the questions was like, well, what did you most enjoy when you were a child? And what have you always been naturally good at? Like, what do you feel like came easy to you? And for me, that was like all the answers just led me to like, I need to get back into writing. Like, <laughs> and you know, so, so there was a combination of the, of the, you know, screw this, the, um, wanting to do something more fulfilling with, with one's life, um, and get back to something that, you know, brought you joy. Yeah. I, I, uh, my brother, my older, one of my older brothers is a consultant. Um, and he, just kind of talking to him and and so various friends of mine that kind of work in big business and things like that. It, it there is that kind of what you were referencing earlier of a very clear sort of you need to be driven. You need to look at what you're going towards. You need to know what your goals are. You need to be looking at yeah, becoming VP of whatever or you know wh you know what company do I want to run someday? And it's all so incredibly I don't know, work driven uh, that that I guess I, I don't wonder if more people uh, don't wonder that more people don't burn out into kind of saying, yeah, you know what? I want to do this thing that I liked when I was a kid. Uh, Cause it, it does seem very stressful. Um, you know, my dad actually started off in big business. And, and when I was about five, he uh, got laid off from his job. He got offered a new job in a different city. And he kind of said, no, you know, I'm going to start my own business. And he became a small town accountant. And that's kind of the dad I grew up with, which is, 
all my older siblings grew up with a very different father. Uh, but it's interesting how people reach that kind of breaking point of saying, no, you know what? I need a change. Uh, and I don't know, is that, is that, is that what, I don't know. You always talk about midlife crisis as like, you're buying a sports car, you know, but like (laughs) maybe midlife crisis is just saying this thing I'm doing isn't working quite for me. Let's change it up. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did feel like at the time that it was a little bit of a, it would have been for me, I guess, a third life crisis. Um, unfortunately early enough that, you know, it wasn't, uh, that I, right. I could make that relatively transition relatively smoothly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I, I really do think that there's like a yearn for creativity in just about everybody. And there's not that many jobs, um, that you get to flex that creativity on a, on a daily basis. Um, like if I were to go, I remember actually that I did this retreat back in my day job. And one of the questions was like, Oh, like what would be your dream job? Right. And like a lot of people's dream jobs were things like, I want to be, a, I don't know, a travel writer or like, um, a dancer or like, you know, whatever it was that like sort of they, um, they imagined would like, was, was either a childhood love or, um, would allow them to like make a living at what they, what they enjoy inherently um, like when they aren't being paid for it. Right. Um, so I, I think there, there is that strong drive in a lot of people. And then of course, like you actually do it <laughs> and you turn your, your, your hobby into a career and that comes with its own whole host of challenges. But there's, there's, I think also um, it, it's, it's not attainable for everyone. I think a lot of people are, are held back by the fact that, you know, it, it is it is hard to turn something that you enjoy into something that is a professional obligation. That's definitely not, and that's why. Like sometimes, I, I mean, I teach a lot of writing classes, and um, and I I do tell students sometimes that like you know, publication doesn't have to be everyone's goal, or like becoming a full time writer doesn't have to be your goal. Like there's you know, just be kind of honest with yourself about why you write and and what you're writing for and do your soul searching as to what it means to you and how much you want to commit to it. And, you know, there's people I know who've left their day jobs and become writers and it's been very hard. They haven't enjoyed it. They've had like serious publishing setbacks and um, found they were happier with a day job. I no, I, I kind of, I kind of love seeing how everybody reacts differently to these things it be, because everyone's built, you know, everybody's wired a little bit differently and, and whether they're able to make that transition, like you referenced to taking your love and turning it into a work obligation. Um, I, I think that's honestly been one of my big challenges as an author is saying, and I've mentioned this a bunch of times on the podcast, I don't really read anymore, read fiction anyways. And when I was a kid, I read everything like nonstop. And it just kind of disappeared over the first four years or so of my career. And, uh, and it, it almost like kind of has left this little hollow spot inside me that I, I, I I'd love to try to get back, but I kind of don't know how to. Um, and I, and I do wonder, you know, I, I think I, I know a lot of authors still read very voraciously. Um, but I, I wonder if kind of there's other people that have had the same experience as me and, and, and what do you do to kind of get back the pleasure in the thing that you now have to do for money? Yeah, I, I hear you. I cannot read when I'm drafting my own work because having another person's authorial voice in my head messes with me in some way. And also what I'm reading is this polished published work and I have to work with my word vomit, you know, that's on the screen. (laughs) And that is also, it's mentally disassociating. So um, I go through these uh, peaks and waves in my reading habits where if I'm drafting, I'm not, reading and then in between drafts or like after something's been sent off and I'm in some period between projects, then I'll like read a whole bunch of stuff all at once. Um, I also do audiobooks and um, I'll also consume a lot of stories that aren't books. Like I'll watch television, I'll watch film, huge consumer of stories, even though there are times when I can't focus on other people's words. But I, it is also challenging because now I find so much of my reading is obligatory in some way, either like I've been sent an arc and been asked to blurb it, or I'm like appearing at an event with another author. And I'm like, I should read their work before I appear at an event with them. Or I'm trying to do my 
awards reading for like the Hugos or the Nebulas because I feel like, you know, I should, I should be part of, should be a current in my field and understand like what's being like talked about and, and highlighted these days. So even that, even though that is all enjoyable and I've read fantastic stuff, I mean, I got your latest book as an arc. I loved it. Um, but it is, you know, all of that as a whole is still obligatory. And so it be your, your actual reading for pure pleasure goes down dramatically. Like when was the last time I actually went into a bookstore, browsed it, picked up a book just out of sheer sort of interest that I hadn't heard of before and then discovered it. Like never, I never do that anymore. It's always um, something that's being, that's shown to me through kind of my the professional lens. Um, and I do make an effort to do, to go out of that. Like I do try to read stuff that's outside of science fiction and fantasy, um, even, you know, a, a nonfiction, um, you know, other thriller, other genres. Uh, but, but yeah, I, it definitely does. Um, I hear you on that. I used to read voraciously and, and uh, now it's, it's harder to do so. Do you ever look back a kind of on your life as a whole, you know, where you grew up and, you know, kind of, uh, how you grew up and what your job was. And do you ever look at that and dissect it a little and kind of figure out what parts of those became the worlds that you create? That's a good question. I can see how they come together after the fact. So like I'll be writing something and then it'll become really glaringly apparent to me why I made the creative choices I did because of things that I loved in media, experiences that I had growing up, background, family, whatever gets into your work. And sometimes it's conscious, like sometimes with the Greenbone Saga, for example, it was a pretty conscious decision on my part that I was taking as elements of things that I loved in epic fantasy and crime drama and Asian cinema and like Kung Fu movies and like smashing it all together and making it work in a secondary world. Um, so that was a very deliberate creative choice. But then there are things like family dynamics or relationships or the outlook of a certain character where as you're writing it or after you're writing it, you realize, oh yeah, like, of course, like that's, this is from, you know, something in my life or something that like resonates with me on some level because of, you know, some, something in my psyche um, or identity or relationships with people. Uh, so, um, so yeah, like I, I think like sometimes, I don't know if you ever feel this way. Sometimes you get to the end of a, of a book or a big project, like a, like a trilogy and you could, like write a thesis on your own book as <laughs> to like, you know, all the little, the, the little things, the themes, the elements, the little choices you made and your the things that probably readers are never really going to necessarily notice, mm-hmm. um, but that you put in there uh, for some deliberate reason. Yeah. My, my favorite are always my jokes that I put in because I find it funny and nobody notices them. <laughs> <laughs> Or things that I put in as a joke that my care in my like the the character's voice in my head it comes out as a joke, but then like the audiobook reader will read it in a way that's very much not like the way that I meant it to come out. You know, little things like that. It's very that you know just don't end up coming across in the translation of the medium, uh, even though in my head they're a very particular way. Right. Yeah, and it's always interesting to see how readers, I mean, readers bring like half the experience with them, right? When they're, when they consume the story, because you'll see fan art depictions, you'll, you'll listen to the audiobook um, narrator. If, if you're going through adaptation process, there's people who like have their own takes on things. You'll, uh, and you'll have people react to your characters in wildly different ways, like dissecting their motivations in like completely opposite ways. And then you realize like, like your intention on the paper is only like one piece of the puzzle and someone else has seen it in a completely different light. Um, so that's always interesting uh, and and humbling and kind of cool and kind of weird. I mean, that's the whole, the, the, the death of the author discussion. Um, is that, am I saying that phrase right? 
uh, where you, it's the whole concept of saying, well, do you divorce the work of art completely from the author and only take what individual readers will get out of it? Because, because the author's life and experience and what they're putting in are very different from the life and experience of the reader coming out. And it can be little things and it can be big things. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I had a couple characters in the Powder Mage series that people kind of in my life came to me and said, oh, well, you you put so-and-so in your book. And I hadn't at all. Uh, and the, not on purpose anyways. Right, and then right. I look back and I go, oh, wow, yeah, I did kind of dead on describe that person. But I right. certainly didn't mean to. Uh, right. But but then then when I started my next Powder Mage series and continuing on in my career, I very deliberately avoid descriptions that are like people I know in my real life. It, it is interesting. I heard someone once say like, what often happens when you write a book is like you write it and then other people tell you what it's about. Yeah, it's that's so bizarre. Uh, the way that we can have, you know, we as people can have a complete grasp of communication, of a language, of everything. And yet we can have a conversation in the same language with the same everything and be having two different conversations. Yeah. And, and that goes from, you know, authorial stuff, you know, from, you know, writing and big books and things like that, all the way down to the conversations you had with your, have with your spouse, where you just people, people speak their own language inside of the social structure that we already kind of have created. That's really true. It's something that I try to capture when I'm writing character dynamics. And one of the things that, I think we can do really well with multiple POV, uh, you know, epics is the world is really defined by your perspective, right? So when you have like a couple of characters who are going through the story and you're able to move between them, you can see how differently events seem to them based on like, you can have one character and, and be in their head and then their self-perception is very different from another character's perception of them. And that it's, it makes the world, the fantasy world feel more nuanced, more real, where if you have characters who are, who have some relationship uh, to each other and you can write a scene where they're talking, but there's just as much that's not being said or that is being inferred, or there's like the subtext that's, kind of coming through in that interaction or they're talking past each other in some way, because that's what we do. Um, I, I, I love those scenes. Like I love writing scenes like that because they, um, they just feel human, right? Like those are sometimes the, sometimes the scenes that like, I feel like take the most um, time and care to get right. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's, but it's also like one of my favorite kind of authorial tools is jumping point of views. Uh, and I just, and that's why I like Epic Fantasy so much, is, is being able to jump between multiple heads to look at those various, to look at one event and see how different people remember them. Um, and like, or, or even or even on the very kind of simplest basis, one of my favorite things is showing a character as a badass, you know, like you can't just have them beat up on everybody on screen. It's far more, it's very easy as the author, but far more subtle to the reader if you have one character kind of describe them as a bad, describe someone as a badass, have another character describe that person as a badass, then have the character that you're really trying to build up come and kick the crap out of that person. It's just that, like, kind of these chains of things that can create an impression around a character and ultimately kind of build to depth of world building i love that kind of stuff right yeah yeah definitely hey page break listeners brian here rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug making a podcast isn't free and i'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance to do so head on over to patreon.com pagebreak where you can toss as little as three dollars a month into the tip jar five dollars a month to get the podcast ad free and early and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Well, I have to ask you a piece of advice. Oh, yeah. Because I am about to finish 
to launch the last in a in a big epic fantasy trilogy. Yeah. And I'm feeling a little at loose ends of like, I don't know if you experienced this where you're, you know, you've this huge project that's coming to a conclusion and now you've got to work on something new. And there's all these projects that have kind of like been percolating your brain, but you've put them off for a while. Cause like you got to focus on getting the thing done. You don't want to be that author who like takes too long to finish the trilogy. So you, you put a sh- push everything else aside you finish the trilogy. And now, you know, I'm, I'm in this spot where it's like, there's this freedom, but also this like sense of limbo, you know, in a way, because you have to make a decision about what to write next. And you've just spent so much time in this one world, this one story. And every idea that you examine is kind of being examined through a lens of like, oh, but like, does this live up to my previous work? Like, is this worth investing in? And, and I, so after I finished the Greenbone Saga, I was like, I got to do a palate cleanser. Cause like my, my brain is just chock full of this one world and this one story. So I did like two novellas and like some short fiction and like, kind of was like, okay, I got to reset the brain. Um, and now it, like it's, it's weird. There's, a, it's, I still feel like I'm a little bit of a creative crossroads. Yeah. So I'm curious about like how that, what, how that experience was for you finishing a big trilogy. And I, I feel like I've got other stuff I want to work on, but also there's all the emotion of fin- finishing. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I kind of chickened out after my first trilogy. Because I, so I, I didn't have a career at all. I was terrified of having to go back to like basically flipping burgers. Uh, I never flicked burgers, but you know what I mean? Go back to minimum wage jobs kind of that I hated. Uh, and so I was absolutely terrified. So I locked in a contract for the second Powder Mage series. I think Promise of Blood had only been out for like eight months or something like that. And it had only done so-so, but they, you know, they were happy enough with it that they locked in a second trilogy in the same world. And, uh, and honestly, I, so I didn't really get to make that sort of transitional crossroads uh, decision until only a couple of years ago when I was finishing up the sixth Powder Mage book, right. uh, moving on and kind of going, well, where the crap do I go now? I mean, I, what do I want to do? And uh, you know, freaking out a little bit. So I totally get that. I, so basically when I kind of reached that uh, kind of the, that confluence of my of my career uh, or that intersection of my career, I, I kind of had to look at uh, business Brian and uh, creative Brian. And I kind of figure out how to make them meet uh, in the middle and and figure out, uh, you know, like a plan for my long term career. And, you know, I'd already kind of created a brand as this military fantasy author. Uh, where do I, do I really want to stick with that? You know, I'm, I'm becoming a little more interested in kind of like the political side of the, the, uh, these big fantasy worlds. Um, do I lean into that? Do I kind of try to, to keep on board the readers that love my military fantasy? Um, but also, you know, what do I, what do I want to work on? What's interesting to me? And and I guess, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to be in a good place with, you know, sales numbers. And uh, I, had, I had publishers who were interested in whatever else I decided to do, um, which I imagine, which you, based on my research into your career, you're very much at that spot, too. Uh, and it's a, it's a good feeling, right? Like, to kind of, to kind of know that you're at least going to have the fast track to people looking at your next thing. And, and so I guess, I guess my best advice is just try to find the meeting of what you want to work on versus what you should work on for your career and, and then see if you can create something that meets both of those criteria. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes a ton of sense is very much where my head is at right now. And it's, um, and I go back and forth pretty frequently of like, oh, like, should I work on, on like, how far, um, do I stretch? my brand, so to speak, you know, if I work on this, is this something that will be creatively uh, new and exciting for me, but will it also bring along the readers who love me for my previous work? Or is this something that's too far off, you know, or so there's, yeah, there's all these like um, considerations that go into your creative portfolio. Once you uh, have, you know, stuff that's out there and and have a, a career that you're 
you're trying to use to satisfy um, yourself, um, both professionally, but also artistically. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of ran into it on a very small scale when I when I did uh, my little urban fantasy, um, Uncanny Collateral, I had kind of thought, oh, I want to do kind of a palate cleanser between books. And so I did this little urban fantasy set in my hometown of Cleveland. And and it's funny because I, I wrote it and it came in quite short. It was only about 45,000 words. And I showed it to my agent and my agent kind of said, you know, this is really fun. I really like it. I, I'm not sure if anybody would be interested. And we, we did. So I, I kind of had this. I, I knew that I may might have to self-publish it. Um, and we shopped it around, uh, not a ton, but a bit. And all the responses back were, oh, this is fun. It's too short. And also, you're a military epic <laughs> fantasy writer. What are you doing? Huh. Um, and and so it's it's weird how you kind of becoming at least marginally successful in a certain thing almost makes it harder to do other stuff. And there's writers that have very successfully, you know, kind of jumped around, but it's also can be really hard to jump around and change things up if you're feeling that creative urge. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's how you see, you know, some authors using pen names in order to write in different genres. Um, And I also would like to make sure that my brand is not too narrow Right. Like if I write another um, series that is very similar to or too reminiscent of the Greenbone saga, then that's going to become my thing, you know, like and I don't want that necessarily to be I want my brand to be uh, wider than that. So, um, you know, it it is it it is a calculation, if you will. And and um, some of your readers will follow you no matter what you do. Um, Some of them will will jump ship as soon as you don't do the thing that you that they that they like. Um, and so you, you're not entirely sure what that overlap is. Um, like there's certainly some of my readers who read both my YA fiction and my adult fiction, um, but very many of them do not. They're, they're separate audiences. Yeah. Did you, so you started off kind of with a couple of YA books. What kind of prompted that first little transition that you did from, you know, starting off successfully with a couple of YA books and then jumping over to adult? Yeah. So I I always knew that I wanted to write both young adult and adult fiction. Um, my honestly, when I when I picked up writing again um, and started looking towards publication, YA science fiction and fantasy was what brought me back into the fold. Um, because about ten years ago, I think YA was ahead of adult fiction in terms of the cross genre and. Um, aspects and the scope of diversity of characters. Um, I would say that YA kind of was the vanguard in in that area, and uh, and I liked the you know I, I really enjoyed the the pacing and the uh, excitement of like a lot of young adult fiction that got me back into into genre. And so uh, when I when I started off publishing, I wrote a YA novel that uh, didn't sell. And then I wrote this next, my next novel, which became my debut, fell in between. I didn't really, I mean, I was not published yet. So I didn't really like think of writing to category or anything like that. I just wrote the story I wanted to write. And it fell in between YA and adult. And so my agent and I shopped it around and we got a bunch of adult editors who said, oh, this feels too YA and a bunch of adult YA editors who said this feels too adult. And it ended up selling to a YA house and I made a few um, alterations to it to make it more, uh, more YA. And it's still a very upper YA novel, but because I then debuted in YA, it made sense for my next project to also be uh, YA science fiction novels. That's how I ended up there. Um, but along the way, I was also working on the Greenbone saga. It just took a long time to like um, to gestate that particular project because it was so much bigger and it was my adult debut. So um, in the past, I would say like five years, adult science fiction and fantasy, in my opinion, has like caught up to YA in terms of kind of the broadening of the scope of the genre. Um, like I, you know, when I started, when I came back to writing, I still really felt like adult fantasy was very traditional uh, medieval European uh, milieu was kind of still the default. 
And I wasn't finding that as much and why I felt like there was more freedom there. Um, and it's really only in recent years that I feel like the adult science fiction fantasy like genre has just like blown open in terms of what you can do. And it's where I, I'm very happy um, working is that kind of, uh, you know, that, that more, uh, you know, I mean, you do flintlock fantasy, right? You can, you surely um, can relate to that as well, where you're like, you want to see where, what other inspirations in terms of time period and, and culture and geography can, can influence epic fantasy. But, um, but yeah, like with, with, be with my first book being YA, like what we were talking about, once you're sort of locked in an area, you sort of, or you're published in one area, they, they want to see more of you in that one area. So I kind of did a, um, a little bit of a sidestep, but in a, in a way it was great too, because I felt like I got to debut twice. Um, and there is that like debut energy that uh, <laughs> that's, that's wonderful when you have it because uh, nobody knows what to expect from you yet. So it's like you're, first big soiree into the, into the field. So there's definitely, I still, that's also a consideration for me is like, okay, do I want to continue to try and maintain publishing in both those categories? Is that going to be too much? Like how much can I really handle, put on my plate? Yeah. All that comes into to mind. Yeah, it's interesting. You kind of touched upon something there, the uh, kind of the debut energy. Uh, Cause that's something I've noticed in the uh, kind of the little, uh, especially kind of the reviewer ecosystem that kind of exists around publishing. Uh, uh, it's a very weird little phenomenon. So you can have your first book, your debut comes out and it can just get so much attention and everybody's saying something about it and it's being talked about, it's getting around and everything. And it's weird cause you can get tons of that. And then your second book you get like, you know, a couple trade reviews and a few bloggers that are, you know, vaguely interested. So weird. Yes. And it's, so it's weird because you, you come in and everybody wants to have a piece of the new thing. But once you've moved past your debut, either uh, you're massive and you're selling like crazy and you don't actually need the help, but everybody's talking about you anyways, or you're everyone else. And there's not, nobody's really talking that much about your sequels except for your existing fans. And so you're not really getting out to other people. And I don't think publishers help that because they don't terribly care about doing tons of publicity for sequels unless they're already big. Uh, and it's, it's a very weird little artifact of our, of our industry. It, it, it is. It's very weird because there's nothing really going for a debut other than the fact that they're new, right? Like this is a completely unknown entity. And like, what other field do you celebrate inexperience? You know, like read this, it's the first <laughs> thing they've written. I mean, maybe who knows how many books they've written that didn't sell beforehand, but there's, there is some um, shininess to uh, publishers wanting to find the next, I don't know, like, wonderkind you know debut author um and so it is uh it can be kind of dispiriting um to see work that you know is better personally uh because yeah. it's your like your second or third or fourth or fifth book and it gets less awards recognition less reviewed less you know, less attention period. Um, even though you're like, no, everyone really like read my third book. My third book is where yeah. it's at. Right. But like, you'll never match the amount of coverage that you got for your first. And it's, I think there's like a weird, uh, mentality with, uh, with debut novels where publishers don't have any sales figures yet. And so mm -hmm. there is no track record and the author is like a wild card and in terms of like how their book is potentially going to do. And so it's like a blank slate upon which, you know, they can try to, they can make a hit out of it. And, and like so much, I don't think people who aren't in publishing really realize that the books that break out and are successful are that way because the publishers have like largely predetermined that like, this is what they're going to bet on. Like, this is the horse. It's not like all the books got an even starting field and like the best one rose above. Like that's not how it works. You know, it's, there's very much, it's very much decided by marketing budgets and publicity budgets and all that stuff and um, the advance that was paid and so on. Um, and so no one can kind of uh, 
is is the wiser, I guess, with the debut yet. And, and um, it's a, yeah, it's a weird thing. Yeah. There's a sort of weird optimism that goes with every single debut. It's like, it's like a publisher, like it's like a publisher experiences the total wild west of their industry, you know, five times a month or whatever, however many books they're putting out. But then, yeah. And then, and, and sequels, they're not the, they're not the wild west anymore. They're, they're just, oh yeah, it's a known entity. We can, well, let's, uh, we'll allot this certain amount to try to, you know, we'll do a couple of Facebook ads and and that's fine. You know, they'll, their existing fans will hopefully come and read. And it's, it's a little bit weird because you also, you can look at sales figures and you can say, oh man, my books are doing really well. But I like just being on the internet, which is, this is another one of the curses of social media is that being on the internet, you're kind of like, oh man, but nobody's talking about them. They're selling great. You know, the backside of everything that nobody else sees is doing great, but they're all very quietly reading rather than talking about it. Right, right, right. But you can also get the opposite, which is I, I've experienced times when like my books have gotten a very nice amount of like attention and I am waiting for like, so does this mean I'm going to sell more? Like this is, this is most, um, uh, noticeable around awards season. So I've had times when like my books have been on awards ballots, um, and I'm getting all this like mention for these, for awards nominations and it's all wonderful. I'm like, yay, you know, but like awards don't actually, in my experience, move many books. Like <laughs> they're very nice and they are, um, they're, they're, they're an honor and I treasure them. Um, but at the same time, you know, they do not translate into commercial success. So there's this, um, there, there's this weird juxtaposition where you're like, on one hand, you are successful because like you've got starred reviews and awards. And on the other hand, like you still need to pay your mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) Sales would be great. And so there is, uh, I think a, it, it all contributes to like that unpredictability, right. Of like your, of your, both your artistic advancement and your ability to make a living at this thing right and and plan out your life both professional and and personal uh it's you know kind of wrapping it back around to what we were talking about at the beginning there it's just it's a very strange industry to be in i think that when people do writing classes and you know really want to be professional authors honestly that's probably something that should be focused on is Man, you're going into an industry that's not really like any other industry that you could have been prepared for, and it's very strange. But I've kept you for forever now. Um, thank you so much. I always like to try to end these podcasts uh, by asking, what's the last thing you ate that blew your mind? Oh, I love food, Brian. I, I could give you a top 10 list, <laughs> but I am, I really, I, I tend to do a like food tour every time I go to a new um, travel destination because I just, I love checking out new food, new restaurants, but last meal that really stuck out for me. uh, So I'm in Portland and we have like a big food truck culture here. Yeah. Um, You can get some amazing stuff out of food trucks and a fellow writer friend, um, Jen Reese, she introduced me to this sushi food truck here um, in Portland. That's like, a, f- a humble food truck, but like some of the best sushi I've ever had. And um, the uh, the owner of this of this sushi food truck, every once in a while, this is in the before times, he would do these um, omakase dinners, which is basically like a ten course sushi like tasting menu. And oh my god, it was so good! Just uh, just every little dish was so well presented and like I can I I do the whole range you know from sloppy burger to like the the really omakase sushi dinner menu where it's like a little bit of food and you put it in your mouth and it just melts and like all the flavors just explode in your brain and it's it's wonderful um so that's probably most memorable pandemic pre-pandemic meal that I had that's super cool I so I I don't think I've ever done a food as an experience sort of thing. And I would, I would love to try that sometime, you know, like I, I don't, um, I don't, I don't do seafood. Um, but I, I have a lot of friends who love sushi and I'm always kind of jealous of the, 
the mentality around let's go get sushi. There's something that's a little bit special and different about it that I always feel like kind of like, oh, I wish I wish I was into that. Oh, well, I'll, I'll tell you why, because I, I've continued to get like takeout um, over the pandemic. And it's because sushi is a thing you cannot make at home. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a lot of stuff. I mean, I, I cook at home quite a bit. Right. And a lot of it. OK, I can't make it as well. Like I can't make a burger quite as good as the burger from my favorite burger place at home, but I can make a burger. Like I can operate, you know, the the barbecue and get the buns and all that. But like, I am not going to trust myself to make sushi. And even, uh, and and I'm certainly not going to be able to present it the way that like a good sushi restaurant is going to do it. So I think there's just the, the inherent appeal of something that, you know, you leave to the professionals, like this is out of your league in terms of food preparation. That's fantastic. I, I, I kind of love that. I kind of the, the brilliance of somebody who has done this for a living and create something that you couldn't replicate. Like you were saying, there's not a lot of foods that you couldn't really replicate at home with enough kind of work. But when you get those niches that you can go out to a restaurant where someone else will show you how it's done, that's cool. I like that. That was author Fonda Lee. Thanks again to Fonda for taking the time to chat. You can find links to her social media and some of her books down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson for his backing on Patreon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.